hear me. А вы что, собираетесь на ней жениться? Да. Ух, красота-то какая. Лепота. Таможня дает добро. И вообще не называй меня, пожалуйста, Вероника. Кто я? Вот кто я? Отныне русские земля единый быть. Hi, my name's Ali, and this is the Rus Files Unite podcast, where we watch Russian films and films with a Russian connection. As always, I'm joined by a guest, and today my guest is Johnny Tickle. So, hi, Johnny. Thank you for coming on the show. Hello, my pleasure, my pleasure. I've been listening to you for a long time. Oh, that's that's great. That's always, that's always nice to hear. So, Johnny, uh, could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm from England, as you can hear. I'm from a city called Preston. Actually, when I was born there, it was a town. It became a, a city during my lifetime. Uh, oh, I like, don't... got the charter and all that. Yeah, 2002, it was the Queen's Jubilee. She uh, made one city in England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Uh, we were the lucky ones to become a city in uh, in England, 2002. Yeah, we should explain for non-UK listeners, we have this weird thing where to be officially a city, you have to have a charter from the monarch. And yes. where... Where I grew up and where I uh, live now again after my... Uh, Your stint in uh, Russia, huh? My st- yes, which is now quite a long time ago. Uh, yeah. But after my st- yeah, stint, stint in Russia, I'm back, I'm back here. And it's kind of a little bit of a joke place in, in England, but it's called Milton Keynes. And it just asserts its citydom, even though it doesn't have the status. But we're just like... Well, we're big enough to be a city, so we're just going to call ourselves a city and whatever. But it's so weird when you think about it from like a non-British perspective. I mean, right. like Ru- from a Russian perspective, it's even it's like strange. It's just all the same to them. Yeah, because a gorod is yeah. a town or a city, and I don't know what size you have to be to count as a gorod but it's not it's not even a basula because it's not a village isn't it yeah <laughs> it, it's not even that big yeah so yeah. like <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of rid- ridiculous but but, yeah. but anyway yeah yeah so mine's called preston anyway yes which i'll just mention it mention in, in passing that's um i i used to pass through there on the train eh? a, a number of times a year because i went to i went to lancaster uh right. university so uh whereas you went to to university in in london you went to yes, ucl that's correct yeah so we kind of did the opposite thing so uh non-uk listeners i should also also if you have acute ears you may be able to tell that i'm from southern england and yes, john is northern, from, yeah. from the north yeah kind of difference in vowels but yeah i i'm a southerner who went north for uni and uh, and you're a northerner who went south but but yeah. anyway um yeah i totally interrupted you when you were explaining <laughs> yeah yeah so i'm from preston i don't have like a particularly long story about my introduction to russia like some of your previous guests you know uh 
like Michelle Birdie, for example, I hers was she talked forever about her long story in Russia because she's been here for so long. But I've only mm. been here for uh, well two and a half years, um, three years cumulatively, because uh, I studied Russian in university. Mm. Uh, I did a year abroad in Saint Petersburg, which, like, co- coincidentally, is one of the characters in the movie we're talking about, and. Um, Ever since I graduated from university in London, I've been living and working here in Moscow. Awesome. Um, so you did uh, a languages degree and you also did German as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So I did a half a year in Hamburg and half a year in St. Petersburg. Mm. So that was going to be one of my questions. Uh, yeah. Was So having, I'm assuming at school, you would have studied German and carried that on at university or yeah, were yeah, you yeah, right that's right yeah i did german mm. at a level and i started russian from nothing in university gotcha because that, that's one of those things like there are some places where you can learn russian at school but it's it's generally the kind of exception rather than the rule it's typically you you do spanish french or german are, are kind yeah. of the the options but uh what made you decide to pick Russian as, a, as an additional language? That's that's a good question. Um, I always wanted to learn a second language because I, I was, I finished my A-levels like really good at German, far better mm. than the rest of my class. So I thought this university is going to be a breeze. Why don't I pick up a second language? Mm. So I was thought through them and I thought about Spanish, but lots of English people speak Spanish. And I thought, well, Russia is a country I've always been interested in, mainly mm. through history, but also through literature, but really mainly history. Mm. And um, I chose it over Spanish. It was between those two. And, gotcha. it, and basically what turned out was I, what I thought was going to be a very easy degree, because I was essentially fluent in German, mm. became an incredibly hard degree because I picked up Russian. <laughs> yes, yeah, so some rather different uh, consonant clusters going right, on uh, right, to, yeah. to kind of uh, wrap your teeth and tongue and lips around. Yeah, I feel like that's one of those things that people always say, oh, isn't learning to read the Cyrillic alphabet the hard thing? And it's kind of like, ah. Uh, no, that's, that's, that's less than no. one, isn't it? Yeah, you, it's a couple, it's a couple get, days. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny. I did a taster lesson of mm-hmm. Russian at some kind of like Northamptonshire languages day, like okay. when I was about fifteen, and they did, and we did Russian, and and that was the impression I got from that was just like, oh, just learning a different alphabet is so hard. And it's like, mm, it's not. I mean, like tiny kids learn. Learn the Latin alphabet if if they grow up in in the UK. So it's yeah. you know it's it's not that hard. You're just memorizing some uh, some symbols, and a lot of them are the same. So, but yeah, yeah, so, that was so the easy was, bit. Yeah, <laughs> so it was a bit of a bit of a shock to the system. Yeah, because I I, did, I also did French at um I did French up the GCSE. I ended up gotcha. choosing German over French just because I liked mm. it more. Um, okay. And I wanted to, I didn't want to, I didn't envision myself going into languages, so I just threw away mm. French so I could do a bit more of a broader range of, of subjects. Mm, I, I did the same, but with French instead instead of German. And okay. uh, yeah, but I, I really struggled at A-level French and just, uh, I, I just uh, kicked it to the curb after the first year. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it happens to some people. You've either got it or you haven't. Or... Uh, yeah, I don't know. Because I really enjoyed it. I just wasn't doing as well in my other subjects and my rationale was like well the time i'm putting into this is going to drag me down in the other subjects but yeah you know the wisdom of a what like 16 slash 17 year old right Uh, yeah 
anyway, sorry, hijacking your, your side of the story again. No, go for it. So basically, since I've been here in uh, Moscow, well, it's two and a half years now, and I've had a few jobs, I keep myself busy. But at the moment, the main way that people know me is from YouTube. Uh, so if someone recognized my name in the title of this podcast, it's got to be because of my YouTube. Which started off as me wanting to show foreigners that Russia is not weird or alien. And has basically ended up as a way to fund me traveling all over the country. Yes, I was going to say, uh, you, you've traveled quite extensively within, uh, within Russia. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to go back a little bit and, and say, like, what, what was it that kind of having done six months in one place and six months in the other made you settle on, on Russia? Well, it, it turned out that I, um, I enjoyed both equally, essentially. But living in Germany it wasn't really a challenge. Uh, mm. My German was excellent. Germany is not that different to England. In fact, it's basically the same. It's the same if transport works properly, basically. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was kind of my experience of, of visiting Stuttgart uh, for a few days, like about 10 years ago. It's kind of like, wouldn't it be nice if stuff worked this well in the UK? <laughs> right. So, in fact, in fact, Germany is just a very easy place to live in. There was no mm. challenge for me. And while being in, say, Petersburg, I enjoyed it a lot. But it was it was by no means easy. I, I wouldn't say I didn't have culture shock or anything like that. It was just a very different experience living in either Germany or in the UK. And I mm. sort of um, fell in love with it, really. Um, with Russia, with St. Petersburg. And uh, it made me like sort of determined to come back. When I came back mm. to the UK after being in St. Petersburg, I said to myself, once I finish university, once I graduate, I'm coming on the next plane and I'm flying straight back to Russia and I'm going to find any job I can find. Gotcha. Was there also an element with the language, with being as comfortable as you were with with German that you kind of like thought, well, I've made it this far with Russian. I want to push on with it till I get to that level uh, with that too kind of thing? Or Yeah, yeah, there was. And the funny thing is now my Russian is excellent and my German has mm. de- declined because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just don't use it at all. I haven't used it at all sure. for about two years, apart from when visiting Germany and Austria. And uh, it's hit hit me very quickly that I've basically forgotten everything. Not not everything. That's a stretch. But like, it takes me some time to get back into it. You know? Yeah, everything kind of like shoves into the kind of passive part of your brain, so you can yeah. understand it when people are speaking to you or or when you're reading something. But like, actually trying to speak is <laughs> is really tough. I find that. I mean, yeah. my Russian was never amazing. It was just starting to get reasonably good when I left. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, now it's kind of like, oh, I can, I can watch a film. It's nice to have subtitles just to kind of make sure I don't miss things. But yeah, trying to have a conversation now is kind of back to like pulling teeth. It's, <laughs> it's very sure, sad, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah. So, um, I did say before I jumped the conversation back, uh-huh. you've traveled quite extensively with within Russia, which is awesome, getting to see a bit more of the place. So uh, yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask what what have been your highlights in terms of places you've visited? Because you've done like a top five on, on Twitter and yes. maybe the top two won't surprise anybody, but yeah, then further down the list it's kinda like, huh. Yeah, well I've been to lots of places and the um 
the caveat I'd like to give is that some I spent more time, some I spent less time. Of course. Some, t- some I went in the summer mm. when it was beautiful and 30 degrees. Other times I was there in the winter when it was minus 20. So my, um, my myself, ranking of cities, it's more about, not really about the city, but more of my experience there, which is, of course, linked to the city, but also the stuff I did there, the weather, mm. etc. Yeah, um, that is that is a good caveat, because I noticed that you didn't particularly rate your experience of Nizhny Novgorod, and that was a place that I did manage to get to. Uh-huh. And I went in November, and it was really cold, but it was beautifully sunny practically the whole time we were there. And so it just meant all the views were beautiful. We could walk around and it wasn't miserable because it was nice and sunny. And yeah, just had quite a pleasant experience overall. But yeah, you said that uh-huh. you had like well, lousy weather both day, both times. Well, actually, well, if I talk about um, Nizhny Novgorod, the first time mm. I went there was actually in the summer and it was during oh, the okay. World Cup. And it was during the World Cup. Ah, right. Yes. And that was that was incredible. But I don't know. I don't think it was necessarily because of the city. It's because of mm. the weather. Sure. All the international people there, the excess drinking, watching football. It's a great time overall. <laughs> and then um, after that, I thought, well, I went to Nizhny Novgorod, but I didn't actually see anything apart from the inside mm. of football stadium and a few, sure. and a few bar, bars and pubs. So I thought it's time to go back and see the sights. And I went back, and it was in um, either January or February. And it oh. was freezing cold. <laughs> it was very snowy. But, mm. you know, I try, and, I try and remove that from the equation. I try and move that from the You kind of have to if you're, if you're traveling around right. Russia in the winter. <laughs> yeah. And, like, uh, if we speak specifically about Nizhny Novgorod, I thought the main street was very nice. The Kremlin is okay, apart from the, like, awful 70s building, like, office building, which is right in the middle of a very old Kremlin, which is very strange. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um but once you got away from the main street, there was like lots of things falling down. I remember seeing um, an apartment complex being built. Mm. And I was there in, I think it was January 2019. And there was a sign saying, estimated completion date, second quarter 2018. I was like, that's six months ago. You know? <laughs> but, so, yeah, there's, um, no, I, I, don't, I didn't hate it. It's definitely not in my bottom five. It's somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yes, well... <laughs> I, I kind of wonder sometimes whether Chelyabinsk is kind of like the Russian equivalent of Milton Keynes, that it's just like a place that everyone else likes to make a joke about. Well, Chelyabinsk is definitely the worst place in Russia that I've been to. <laughs> Didn't like the local news and uh, Chelyabinsk pick up that you were the Englishman who hates Chelyabinsk? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been quoted a few times in the newspaper. But there was a funny <laughs> thing. Um, what happened is they posted, uh, Englishman comes to Chelyabinsk, hates mm. it, whatever. And lots of the comments were like, oh, yeah, he's right. It's awful. Okay. <laughs> and lots of like, locals. So then they added a poll in like another article. Like, do you agree with him? Do you disagree with him? And the residents of Chelyabinsk overwhelmingly agreed with me that it was terrible. <laughs> something like 80%. So it was like almost like a... And there's something like 2 or 3%, oh, it's the best city in Russia. A few of them, mm. it's all right. And like 80%, yeah, it's terrible. It's completely right. <laughs> that just strikes me as like quite a... I was going to say that's quite a Russian thing to do, but I can imagine places in the UK doing that as well. Um, I mean, I think being self-depreciating is sort of an international thing. But the thing, yeah. with, the thing with Russian cities, a lot of them have uh, rivalries against another city. Mm. So... You can say to people from Moscow, I don't like Moscow, but they'll say to you, yeah, but would you like it more than St. Petersburg? 
I was going to say, like, do your St. Petersburg friends think of you as a bit of a turncoat having having moved to Moscow now? Uh, you know what? I, I do love St. Petersburg. <laughs> it is my number two city. Mm. But it's, um, for me, uh, it's too small. Gotcha. Moscow is constantly changing. You can mm. go to, you cannot go to an area of, area of the city for two or three months and you'll, you'll come back. And it's completely different. There's a, a new exhibition, there's a new restaurant, something you went to is closed, it's mm. been replaced by something. Whereas in St. Petersburg, that it happens, but nowhere near as fast of a rate. It's not gotcha. growing as fast. The ways that it's growing are just um, apartment buildings, basically, on the outskirts of the city. Yeah, just kind of more residential type. Yeah. And the problem with St. Petersburg, um, people there call it a big village. Mm, yeah, I think I'd heard that somewhere. Yes. It's, it's spot on. Like, um, I've been, I was there for one semester when I was studying there. Mm. And after, like, in the second month, I'd be walking down Nevsky Prospect and I would see people I know. <laughs> oh, well, I met you in this bar or this club or we were in this class together or we, and, like, all sorts of different places that I'd seen mm. people. Whereas in Moscow, I could walk around for all day, everywhere. And there's not a chance I will see anyone I know. And if I do, it's a yeah. big shock. Yeah, it. I remember the the couple of times that I randomly bumped into people in Moscow, and it probably happened like a handful of times in the five uh-huh. years I was there, and it was always a surprise. I mean, yeah, there were a couple of instances where it was like super surprising because I didn't, you know, this was a Russian that I didn't even like had met not in Russia so so that was super surprising but yeah. but yeah it was very it was a very rare occurrence it almost feels like when i go back home to the uk and uh, just like christmas or something mm. and i see somebody i know from school on the street and i can, like hide around the corner so they don't see me kind of thing in moscow not a, <laughs> not, not a problem not a problem no. there's no chance anonymity yeah it's a bit like it's a bit like london in that way actually that's uh, i'm glad you brought london up because i was going to say you've lived in two capitals for you know a good amount of time now uh-huh, how, how yeah. would you compare the two places well I'm, i much prefer moscow but i understand that my reasons are quite personal and sure. to be honest probably like socioeconomic um mm. in london i was a student student loan counting every pound you know yeah. can i afford this can i afford that yeah and dealing moscow, with london prices <laughs> yeah and Russians all say that Moscow is a very expensive city. Mm. And in comparison to the rest of Russia, it is. But compared to London, it's like a... Yeah. It's so cheap here mm. that um, I'm in a situation with... Because I've got full-time work, mm. I don't have to think about what I'm buying. Uh, yeah. I can go out and not think about it. And that mm. means I have the... Like a sort of flexibility here that I don't have in the UK. And sure. also, if I think of my friends who are still in the UK... Lots of them have great jobs. Maybe they're in banking, earning a lot of money. Um, they still have to count the pennies, you know. They, if they don't want to live in some sort of student slum, uh, like yeah. where used to, like where I used to live when I was like really like in university. Mm. At the end of the at the end of the year, they've had one holiday. They've spent all the money. Whereas in Moscow, it's completely different. So that's probably I'm aware that that's like seventy five percent of it. Um, yeah, and and about about Moscow, it also I don't know as recently, but it was always, you know, getting rated as being an extremely expensive city for expats. And part of that was just, like, if you're having a kind of very, like, I don't know... Expat lifestyle. Exactly, kind of executive level lifestyle. If you're 
if you kind of learn to shop where where the Russian people locals, shop. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Spot Your on. Money goes goes a lot further, and and being an English language teacher, that's definitely what what I had to do. So uh, yeah, yeah, and then it just kind of seemed like, I mean, certainly, I don't know what it's like now, but rent compared to London was, you know, much more reasonable. Right. Yeah. Yeah, spot on. And the thing is here, a lot of the expat community, who I tend to avoid like as much as possible, um, <laughs> a lot of them don't speak Russian. Mm. Um, so they have trouble in that way, which causes them to spend extra money in other, other situations. Right, 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 um, right. As, like, you meet ex- expats in a pub who have been here for 10 plus years and don't really speak that much Russian. Um, mm. And I think, how do you, how do you survive? But it's that sort of lifestyle which causes them to spend more than they need to. Whereas if you yeah. can live like a Russian, um, you can speak Russian. Maybe you have Russian friends. It's uh, a lot. It's a lot different. And yeah. But I always talk, hear people comparing London and Moscow. And I think if you take out the 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 money, the socioeconomic part of it, they're very similar. Like mm. um, great nightlife. Um, Great opportunities for travel. Like Moscow's got three airports. London's got loads of airports. Um, like there's all these different things. Uh, the public transport here is great. A lot cheaper in London. Public transport's mm. very good in London, but very expensive. Um, yeah. Oh, and and the Moscow metro has absolutely ruined the tube for me. Uh-huh. Yeah. So there's Moscow and London aren't that different, really. Mm. Yeah. You even said in one of your videos that there was quite a similarity in that just how important the Russian capital is to Russia and ha- and how important London is to the UK. And it's kind of different from, say, Germany or the US, where things right. are a little bit more kind of decentralized. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, everything's here. Um, and like in the UK, everything's in, in London, yeah. And that means that both of those cities, they draw in... Um, the talent, the drawing, mm. people with ambition, um, the drawing, the people who can actually economically afford to go there. Like, there's lots of incredibly talented people in Russia who don't live in Moscow, either by choice or just the fact that they can't afford it. Mm. So there's all sorts of different, and it's the same in London, right? Um, oh yeah, and there's there's something also about the size which which often like puts people off. Like mm-hmm. I certainly like. I went to university and where I went to university because I wanted somewhere that was a bit more manageable. And it was only after I'd lived in a relatively small capital when I was an exchange student that I was kind of like, oh, actually, I I could handle something bigger. So that's how I ultimately did end up, you know, braving Moscow, which was a a big jump for me. But uh, yeah, it is interesting that that there is kind of like a a bit of a mentality about like, whether you think that you will like living somewhere that big. Yeah. And uh, I think um, for anyone who's listening to this, who has never lived in Russia, or is thinking about it, then there's a whole range of cities, which I could recommend to people Mm. to go and live in. So if you don't want to live in a big city, the idea of a city with God knows how many people. Some people say up to 20 million people in Moscow, mm. accounting for all the unregistered people. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, if, you, if that number frightens you, then St. Petersburg is a great option, mm. as are many other cities throughout the country, just, just not Chelyabinsk. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'd say, I mean, haven't been there for a whole, you know, has only been there for a, a, a couple of days, but I can imagine Nizhny being, like, 
quite manageable. Oh, manage- um, manageable but, for sure, yeah. Sure. Um, but you have to bear well, in mind the English level is going to be lower there and everything. That's like that's the other thing. Like, Moscow, well, as as you were talking about it, with, with people who have lived there for 10 years and you can get by with very little Russian. So if you have no inclination to, to learn the language, you can get away with it. But also, if you really want to learn Russian, then... Moscow might not be the best place in terms of making sure you have lots of opportunities to practice because I found I had to get really quite good before people would even put up with me trying uh-huh. to communicate with them like even once my Russian was like demonstrably quite a lot better than their English their mentality was like your Russian can't be better than my English because that's impossible so I'm going to speak my really 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 bad English rather than tolerate your pretty bad Russian. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um Yeah. But I've come yeah. across that as well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, I I'm glad it's not just me. Um mm. but yes, so um we're you know obviously nominally a film podcast. So uh, You say that every time, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> um so I did I did notice in just looking over our kind of preliminary chats that you'd you'd actually done a a module on russian cinema in university so yeah what what films did you did you cover when you were doing that well it was uh i think maybe 10 films um some something in that eight to ten film range okay. uh there were a huge uh, range of different films and i couldn't possibly remember them all now sure but um what it really did that module was introduce me to a bunch of directors, some who I liked mm. and some who I didn't. But gotcha. uh, in particular, I remember um, introducing me to Zvyagintsev, for example. Mm. Um, we watched the movie Elena. Have you seen it? I have, yes. Not for a few years, but uh, yes. Of course, that led me down to watching Leviofan and then Loveless, the most recent one. And um, we also uh, watched The Fool. Have you seen The Fool by Yuri Bikov? Uh, no, but uh, a previous guest, Martin Kessler, he has strongly recommended that one to me. So it's it's very much on the list. Yeah, it's a great movie. Durak, it's called. And there's also uh, Bikov's movie. I it sort of led me into his sort of work, mm. like Mayor, uh, the the major, uh, which is a great movie. And he also made a TV series called The Method, which I found mm. through. Um, it's actually on Netflix if anyone's interested. Which That'd I found, cool. which I found through uh, his m- movies. And then uh, I'm trying to think what else he watched. Um, Cargo Two Hundred, Gross de Vesti. You've seen that? Oh right? no, I haven't. I've not seen that much Balabanov. Um, okay, I'm, well, I've, I've heard. I've heard that one is particularly like grim. Um, particularly grim. Yeah, I've. I've kind of heard people say he's i mean he's he's not around anymore but uh uh-huh. he, he he was a bit of a kind of like russian tarantino in terms of levels levels of, of kind of like grim and unpleasant stuff you can expect uh sure but but really great movie um mm. like uh it's not something you'd watch with family or anything like that uh <laughs> But in terms of like the actual film, it's great. Mm. Uh, I think we we also watched uh, Popogrebsky. Though he has a movie called Cocktail Roads to Cocktail. Have you seen that movie? I have not seen that yet. But I, I we watched How I Ended This Summer. So, yes, I've yes, seen that as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which I enjoyed a lot. So uh, this is a problem actually with with doing this podcast is that if I haven't seen something, there's a tendency to go like. 
oh, save it for the podcast. So right. <laughs> I, I'm not actually getting through my Russian films at perhaps the rate that I might do, which sounds really counterintuitive, which actually brings me on to the film we're going to be talking about today, mm-hmm. because this one I've known about for, this is probably like, with the exception of Tarkovsky and Eisenstein, this was probably one of the first Russian films I heard of, actually, because it was it was made of quite a big deal of when it came out because of its central gimmick. And if you don't know which one I'm talking about, it's Russian Ark from 2002. And the central, well, maybe it's a gimmick or maybe it's, you know, just an artistic decision, but is that it's all one shot. Um, so presumably, was this was this one on your course as well? or No, it wasn't. But funnily enough, I actually ah. watched this movie for a different course. Um, mm. We actually read the... Um, I can't remember what the course was exactly, but we read the book by um, Marcus de Castan, the main character in the movie. We read his... Uh, I think mm. it was called Rush... Something to do with... I can't remember the title now, but I read the book. And then mm. this was like a side thing of the... Um, and part of this module in university. So I had actually sort of semi-studied it before. Because mm, he was like a French traveller who visited Moscow in the 19th century, right? Yeah, he, um, he visited St. Petersburg. Right, yes. <laughs> yes, so he maybe didn't see a wider picture well, of the country. Well, he was. there's absolutely no way he saw a wide picture of the country at all. It was all... Um, it was... Look, mm. It was in the in the court you know you um it was more about seeing what was going on with the Tsar rather mm. than uh, the average people there's no way there's no gotcha. way he saw um a wide range of the country not at all he saw it far no. far far less than i have <laughs> that's, that's, that's for sure mm. yeah i mean that's that's something which you know as many listeners will be aware of that prior to the, the revolution and it, and even afterwards to to an extent there was there was kind of like talk of there being kind of two Russias there's the kind of like the elite level folks who are you know well connected and high up in the government and you know pre-revolutionary times are noble and then there's the vast majority of the population well um, some people might say uh, nowadays isn't that different well well quite possibly yes um yeah so yeah so that's that's what we're we're going to be watching and so as you say it's a rewatch for, for you so uh uh, obviously, you didn't totally hate it. Otherwise, <laughs> you wouldn't have agreed to watch it with us. But uh, no, I didn't yeah. totally hate it. Um, but I have some very strong opinions. <laughs> Great, good. Uh, but um, yeah, I thought it might be worth, as it's kind of topical, talking about the uh, the whole one take yes. thing. Because um, uh, well, uh, obviously, it didn't win the the Oscar, but it did. You know very good business this this year we have uh, 1917 which isn't actually one take but it's that that's the effect so uh yeah have you managed to see that yes, one yet yes i have i have how did you get on with it well i liked it I, I liked it a lot it was one of one of my favorites out of the oscar lots and i've seen i think almost all mm. of them and obviously there's the similarity here with the one shot but 1917 has that mm. fake one shot it's more Seven yeah. to eight minute clips that are cut together to make it seem like one long shot, mm. right? That's my understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas this is the real deal, and it was done back in. It was filmed on, on the twenty third of December two thousand and one. Okay, right. That answers that mm-hmm. question then. So, yeah, it was like a digital camera, and obviously, 
you know, digital cameras have come a long way since then. So, uh, you know, you can now be, you know, for example, a YouTuber now, whereas back then, you know, having a digital camera that could shoot like a 90 minute film, you kind of had to pay quite a lot of money, I would have thought. Yeah, and actually um, that was almost the first time that could have been done. It was the first... We talk mm. about the gap from now until then, but that was the first time they could really have a camera to film 90 minutes, to film a full movie, without having to change batteries and all of this. So that's really why people, yeah. people watch it, right? That does seem to be like its big talking point. So I'm having not seen it yet. I'm I'm wondering how... Because I, I actually saw 1917 mm-hmm. twice, and the first time I was... Partly because I knew, well, I knew I knew ahead of time. I was super aware of the one shot esque thing, but the second time, I didn't notice it at all. I just I was concentrating on other things, so it felt immersive, but I wasn't thinking about it. So I'll be curious to see, to see whether it's just like the the you know the unbroken take just you know feels like it's bashing me over the face have you um seen any more one take films uh i don't think i have um i'm trying to think of (laughs) i'm trying to think of examples no i haven't got round to that yet Um, birdman is like another fake single shot film sure Um, and there's also another one called rope which i've i've never seen i was gonna say yeah i've not seen it but i've heard that Actually, Hitchcock, he really wanted to do it to see if see if he could uh-huh. do it, but wasn't super satisfied with his results. And it's it's meant to be like, you know, a decent film because it's Hitchcock, mm-hmm. but like one of his lesser ones all the same. And some of it just seems a bit like you're making decisions to do the one take thing rather than because it particularly serves the story. So I'm interested in, in, in terms of that because, you know, obviously so much of how you normally convey things in film um, is about what you're, uh, how you're juxtaposing different images through cuts. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's very basic film theory stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, well, I, I only know of one other film which is filmed actually as a unbroken single shot, and it's a mm. film called Victoria. Have you heard of it? I believe it's a German movie. Uh, no, I haven't. Yeah, I've never no. seen it, but it's the only one I'm actually aware of. And um, hmm. it's interesting, before you talked about it, it being a gimmick, right? Well, that's, yeah, possibly the <laughs> the less generous way of describing no, it. No, but, but I, I understand yeah. why you're saying it, because that's originally what got people through the door to like watch the movie. Mm. And the reason why you're looking forward to, to watch it is less the story, I imagine, and more the one shot, seeing how it's done, right? Yeah, that's kind of like the kind of mental hook, but I am interested. I mean, I know that they, I think I know that they condense like 250 slash 300 years and it's all in the Winter Palace, which I've I've been uh-huh. to. It was, admittedly, it was a very long time ago, but um, yeah, so I'm kind of interested to see just that as like a unbroken shot as well. Um, well, in my opinion, I've seen it before. But I don't think it's a gimmick. I think for this movie, without the single shot, it would, could, couldn't exist. So I'd be interesting to mm. interested to hear, hear your opinion in a few days. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Awesome. All right. So what we say before we launch into the film every time is Payekhali. And uh, why do we say that, Johnny? 
It means let's go. Awesome. So, three, two, one. Payethli. Johnny and I have just watched Ruski Kavchek, that is Russian Ark, directed by Alexander Sakurov. And before we talk about what we thought about it, we're just going to have a quick summary of what took place or what was on screen from from Johnny. So uh, we can't really talk of a plot, but we'll probably get onto that later. Still, there's a lot to be said for not knowing what you're expecting uh, when you go to watch this film. So consider this a spoiler warning. We will we'll obviously be saying what what occurs. Okay, so uh, with that out of the way, over to you, Johnny. Well, I'd sort of describe it as um, maybe a walk through Russian history. So you start off, you're following this guy, this guy who is known as the European in the movie. He is a diplomat, French diplomat, as we know from history. And we follow him around the Winter Palace as we see all these beautiful rooms. We see the the way the Hermitage Museum is today. But in each room, there is like a different historical character from Russian history. And it's really hard to call it a plot as such, right? It's Mm -hmm. hard to give give a plot summary. Is there a plot? Not really. It's kind of like... Like you say, it's you're just kind of wandering through this, as you say, now museum, formerly the Romanov Palace, and just encountering various scenes. And yeah, you, you have for company a lot of the time uh, this guy. So I looked it up. It was he in the credits. He's just the stranger, mm-hmm. but our narrator kind of, uh, as you say, describes him as the, as the European. But apparently, this guy. Is, is meant to be or is loosely based on Adolphe de Custine, who was yes. a French aristocrat who came to Russia in 1839 and supposedly said, yeah, Russia doesn't really have a national identity of its own. Uh, what did you think of him as a, uh, as a character and as a kind of travelling companion through this museum? Well, from what I know about the way the movie was made, mm. he... He was just told to walk through and dance around and be flamboyant. And it's sort of a weird feeling because you don't feel like you're walking with him. You're observing him. Mm. Because there's really two characters in the movie that are constantly with you, right? There's, yeah. there's him, the the European, as he's referred to, and then the guy behind the camera, who is actually the director himself, right? I think I think it is the voice of the director, yeah. Yes. Um, and... And, and yeah, the, I th- I thought the voice effect was was really kind of kind of odd because obviously you've got the the European or the stranger talking, and the acoustics are very much the acoustics of whichever room you happen to be in. So it's quite kind of echoey and and reverby. Whereas mm. this kind of like narrator voice is much more kind of like muttery and under 
sort of almost under its breath. And it kind yeah. of sounds a little bit kind of like mumbling. It's like, is this an internal monologue? But clearly some of the time, or quite a lot of the time, the stranger can hear you. So it's like a semi-conversation, but kind of like that sort of breaks off. And when he wanders away, it's kind of like this narrator is talking to himself. So, yeah, it's it's odd. It's kind of like the most highbrow first-person video game that was ever created, you know? Because it's all in that kind of first-person, like, unbroken... Yeah, it's just you're kind of, like, wandering around. I think one thing we we should talk about, you mentioned in the in the summary, was that we encounter figures from Russian history. You should probably point yeah. out that it's not a massive slice of, of, of Russian history. Like, the earliest we're, we're talking about is kind of three-ish hundred years um, yes, back. Yeah. So, yeah, who do we bump into first? Um, first, I believe, is it uh, Alexander I, the Emperor? Is oh, the first one? Maybe. I, I, the first one I really remember uh, was seeing Peter the Great. We oh, see yes, him... he's, he's, like, harassing, like, uh, some... Um, like army guys, right? Like yeah, some... yeah, yeah, yeah. We see him through a window, except the window I thought was probably like CGI'd in, like it was kind of like this this bar, but it looked sort of like it was there, but sort of like lacking some weight. It was kind of, kind of odd, but it was like these kind of bars. From what I know about the the movie, I don't think it was CGI. I just think mm. it was sort of um, maybe touched up, recolored in in mm. post, and it was actually filmed within this whole one-shot yeah. thing. And then I think after Peter the Great, it's, it sort of moves uh, through various different scenes with Catherine the Great, Nicholas the First, Nicholas the Second, and then all the way through to World War Two, and then nowadays, right? Like uh, the modern day. Yeah, like we briefly see a rather enigmatic conversation that seems to be people in the museum management and maybe like a politician and it's quite a fraught conversation um mm-hmm. but it's i kind of don't really remember what it was about other than it was they were clearly <laughs> having a bit of a, a a hard time um yeah so going back to nicholas the second i wanted to mention that it comes more or less towards the end and yes. i found that like really kind of like doom laden because you know we all know what happens to 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 him him and his family and it it just feels oddly like not watching actors doing a performance it feels much more like you know you're you've literally gone back in a time machine because the guy that they got looks so like nicholas the second in his photographs that is Yeah, and then the music they use is is very kind of like doom laden, I guess. Um, yeah, well, well, the interesting thing is we see when we see Nicholas II and his, his children, mm. you can see they have quite uh, a good life, right? Um, there's no like it seems like they've got the kids have quite a I don't mm. know, idyllic life, and but and then when you know Russian history and you know what's coming, you know revolutions coming, mm. you know about their death is coming. I think the background knowledge of Russian history is what gives you that sort of doom, it's a doom-laden, right? Mm. Yeah, I found that really interesting was the fact that you can tell from the titles of the film, which are mostly in the Latin 
alphabet and and it it's it starts off with in english russian arc so clearly it's being made with an international audience in mind but i thought i found it kind of bewildering anyway and i know you know a fairly decent amount of uh, of russian history for a westerner and i think if i didn't know very much at all it would just be kind of like really hard to comprehend at all i don't know i don't know what you thought yeah i think i think that could be true but i the, i think the reason that people who are not necessarily into russian history are watching this movie is not because of necessarily the history but because of the the no cut thing mm. i think the um the history sort of there's something that would run through it whereas uh, me, for example, someone is interested in Russian history, but also in filmmaking. I'm concentrating on both those things. Yeah, so um, you've seen the film before, but uh, yeah, what was your experience of the one cut this time? Because just going back to, we mentioned in the in the first half, 1917, and the second time I saw it, I kind of stopped seeing the fact that it was all one cut, and I just found it super immersive, whereas the first time I was incredibly aware of that. Did you have a similar experience watching this, or were you still super aware that the camera never like blinks, as it were? Well, you know, from what when watching this, because this is not my first time watching, mm. I wanted to focus on it a little bit more because mm. I knew it would come up, and I came to the conclusion that this movie just would not work with cuts. Mm. Yeah, I briefly watched the trailer for it and obviously you can't make a trailer for this film well you could just take a like a two minute a chunk segment it, and just go hey this is a two minute segment want some more of this come and see the film but no it was m- much more conventional and it just felt weird and a lot less special i i guess i would say i i actually watched yeah. it in two sittings and i felt terrible for doing that i felt like it was kind of some weird act of disrespect but mm-hmm. you know it just that was the way you know my uh my evening worked so um well, well yeah the, the funny thing about the the way the camera is floating because you know it's using the steady cam which mm is very steady but it's also like handheld right so i think um, so it's yeah. not it's not completely steady and i sort of felt like when you combine it with the sort of drony constant background music and then like the floating around it sort of felt to me like a ghost story do, mm. do you know where i'm coming from oh absolutely and there's bits where they even allude to that where sometimes it's clear that the people present can see you and and other times it seems like they're not aware at all like and then there's some bits where you're trying to get in places and (laughs) and the people there are interacting with you and saying no no go away and then other times they're like totally oblivious but yeah i totally get that idea of like you're some kind of like ghost or invisible person just kind of like Mm -hmm. um, yeah and then I think when you consider the fact that you sort of feel, when you're watching the movie, you kind of feel like you're a character in like sort of your ghost floating around. And then when you add it in with the the European, the stranger, and then you add in the director speaking, and then sort of everything around, it's sort of like all intermingled, intertwined. It's a very strange feeling, I think, mm. once you're aware of it. Yeah, definitely like, reviews i've seen of this 
use words like dreamlike or you know kind of mysterious or fantastical and i definitely get where where that's coming from um this is kind of jumping from one subject to another a bit go, but go for it. it is it is super interesting that there is a quite a lot in the movie about juxtaposing the european with the russian now for many listeners i think especially uh, perhaps listeners on the other side of the pond will be kind of a little bit surprised because they'll they'll be like uh well i kind of think of russians as being european so um it is interesting the fact that at least if you were just going off this uh, movie the impression is that that's not really how they see themselves um so so yeah uh, what 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 has been your experience living in Russia for a while and travelling and seeing quite a lot of different people and places. And, and of course, it's not necessarily going to come up all the time, but is this something you've encountered, uh, Russians considering themselves as, like, a separate culture from from Europe? I was going to say the rest of Europe, but, you know, seeing themselves as separate completely. Well, what's interesting to me is the fact that different Russians sort of feel different identities, right? Mm. So... If you're in, let's say you're in St. Petersburg, or maybe even in Kaliningrad, because it's actually, you know, it's so it's so European. But if you're in St. Petersburg, a lot of people there do consider themselves to be European. They talk mm. about it being like the European capital of Russia or something like that. Yeah. And I feel like in Moscow, lots of people find themselves sort of um, probably more European than anything else. And then when you go to the Far East, of course, you can go to Habarovsk and Vladivostok. They have a strange identity because they're deep in Asia, mm. but the uh, architecture, the uh, influence from the capital city, it's so European. But there are lots of people who sort of feel stuck between, not necessarily Asia and and Europe, but like you said, like something different. But I think on the whole, when I would speak to people in Moscow mm. or in St. Petersburg, I think they would consider themselves European and and if we think about this movie itself, it's a it is a very European movie. Mm. We consider it's about monarchy, right? That's uh, this European style monarchy. It's that's that's definitely something that comes from from Europe. Um, yeah. Uh, well, that's that's something that's really brought to the brought to the fore in probably one of the most impressive sequences is when we have the Persian ambassador coming mm. to visit Tsar Nicholas I, because Nicholas I and the other Russian monarchs that we see, they look pretty similar to in terms of their dress to the way that people from just any European contemporary monarchy would look. You just kind of change the colours around and, you know, the emblems and you're pretty much you're pretty much there. But the Persians they look very, very different. So I just don't really know anything at all about that period of Iranian history. So it was, it was really interesting seeing those those costumes from from that time period. I thought that was a really cool sequence. Yeah, that's 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 one of the real juxtapositions in, in the movie, right? I heard an interview with the director, and. He was talking about how this movie is sort of about the meeting of 
Europe and and Russia, mm. and how Russia has always been fascinated by Europe. Sure, but Europe's always been a little cold, or, or maybe even ambivalent, ambivalent towards Russia. Mm. Um, and the director, in the interview that I was watching with him, he seemed to sort of re- regret it. Like he, mm. it was something he was he was quite sad about. Um, but I don't know. I think that sort of comes across in the movie as as well, right? Where uh, obviously this guy who's from France and this pe- these people are from Russia. They they are they're more similar than different, aren't they? But the French guy, the the stranger, the European, seems to sort of is looking at them kind of like a zoo, you know? Like oh a, yeah, very much so. Yeah, he's he's quite a disagreeable traveling companion he's so grumpy and so dismissive and so so arrogant you just kind of like you just want to give him a little bit of a shake and like just knock it off okay we've uh, we've got another you know 70 minutes to hang around with you can you please be a little bit more pleasant <laughs> yeah i found i found the same as well he wasn't he didn't endear himself uh to the to the viewer does he like uh... Not at all. Um, yeah. I just wanted to kind of crowbar this in as a as a little bit of uh, of trivia. Go, go for it. So the actor who plays the stranger is Sergei Dryden, who yes. um, I don't think he's got a hugely long filmography, but we've actually covered another of his films on, on the podcast. Um, have you by any chance seen Window to Paris? I haven't seen it. Uh, but I do know he's in it, and I knew he's, he's actually credited in that movie in a different name as well. Yeah, so. I think so. Yeah, but it's it's I forget what he is, what he's what he's called in that one. But it's I, like a different I, surname, I think. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It is. I double checked, and it is it's the it is the same the same, the same guy. Track. But mm-hmm. um, I thought it was you know it was obviously interesting seeing him you know in a role from well over ten years later, but also that that movie very much kind of the clue is in the title it's kind of like russia looking at europe and europe looking back and the two kind of going i don't really get what you're about you're kind of weird and then but you know and that being very much like a mutual feeling so i thought that was a kind of a weird interesting uh it's like a um, parallel there isn't parallel, it parallel really? yeah so I, I don't know how much of that kind of sergey dryden kind of like I don't know how involved he was in, like, talking about how the performance was going to be doing. Mm-hmm. Again, we're kind of jumping back and forwards in time, which I think is kind of apt given given the the, the movie uh, and sort of jumping yes. around in our discussion. But uh, I, I would really like to see more about how this thing was made because it feels improvised in the sense of it just feels like you're wandering around, as I think we've both said. But at mm-hmm. the same time, there's such spectacular kind of set pieces that you encounter that it's clearly not improvised because that wouldn't work. But it's just weird that it manages to have this feel of just some stuff that's happening around you. Well, well, Alistair, you're in luck. Okay. <laughs> there's, a re- there's, a re- there's a really great documentary on, on YouTube about the making of this movie. Mm. And it follows it from just prior to when they start filming uh, and all the way through the first take, which failed, and the second take, which failed. And it shows how they um, 
really interesting. It, it is, it's sort of semi-improvised, but that's only mm. because there's so much, there's so many people, the test is so large, that they couldn't possibly practice, didn't have the spaces to practice. And w- one thing I saw in this documentary is they had, they had one day in the museum and only four hours, which they could shoot it within, because the museum's oh, not going to close forever. Goodness, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. pressure. So it had like one, they had one day basically, and only four hours of the daylight, which was enough to film the the, the mm. movie that they wanted to. So what they showed in this documentary, the the making of the movie, is that the lots of the the actors and the director and even the cameraman who must have been so tired. Oh my goodness! At, yeah, <laughs> came in at came in. He came in at three a.m. to practice. They all came in at three a.m. Mm. And they walked through it because it was the first time, like in the rooms, they'd, they'd practice the sort of movements a little bit, but not in natural spaces. So really, they although I guess it was semi uh, improvised with with like sort of guidelines that they'd practiced over time. Mm. But really, you have to, you'd have to rehearse that so many times to for it really to be without improvisation at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it's incredible, but that but that kind of like semi improvised nature of it is probably why it does feel like strangely like non-fiction you know it kind of feels like a fantastical documentary almost yeah there was a a really cool thing revealed in the making of movie Mm. uh, the making of documentary about it so there's a scene in the in the in the movie the the real movie where the actor gets very close to some fine china do you remember this? Oh yeah, 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 and and the and the guys um, who were like the the wait staff are like, no, leave it alone. Yes, like get away from get away from the China. They were actually real Hermitage security guards in period <laughs> costume oh, who wow. were there to protect Catherine the Great's actual China. Right. Yeah, you you don't want to be the guy who accidentally knocks that on the floor. <laughs> they basically said this actor can come this close, but nobody else can. Mm. Like the cameraman can come so close, the main guy can come so close, and everybody else stay well away. Mm. And he gets really close, and he looks at it, and all of this kind of thing. And then like, get away, get away, get away. And that was <laughs> fully that that wasn't re- that wasn't rehearsed. Mm. That's just them going like, uh, this is the yeah. expensive stuff. Leave it alone. Uh, actually, I have a little bit of tri- I have a bit of trivia for you as well. Sure, about it. The the guy who the stranger the European is is uh, based on, he actually hmm. came from a family of china makers. Oh, okay. So he had like well, a kind of personal slash professional interest. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so it's interesting that he gets so close to the China and like inspecting it and this. Um, maybe the actor, if he's so good, he kind of knew these things and thought, oh, that would be a nice thing to do. I, I don't know, it's just speculation, but interesting fact. Sure, yeah, yeah, that, that is an interesting extra kind of layer of uh, uh, of glaze on the uh, mm-hmm. on the character. On the tra- uh, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Um, oh, where do we go from there? Um, Let's speak about the, um, uh, the camera, the... Some technical things, maybe. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have, I have something like maybe like, is it a gimmick kind of thing? You know. Hmm. Yes. Yes. Because that is that is definitely a very valid question to ask. Like, is this just like a good movie, or is this just a really impressive, like technical kind of almost like athletic feat, but like nothing mm-hmm. more? 
yeah, where would you come down on that? Well, it's interesting because there's, for example, if we're talking about like an athletic feat, you know, mm. there's a 10 minute dancing scene. Yes. Uh, where there's so many um, people in that room and the cameraman's constantly moving. He's orbiting. This is one hour into the movie as well. So he's already been yeah. carrying this super heavy camera. And this is an and hour. this is go number three. I mean, I don't know how far they got into yeah. takes one and two, but still, yeah, this is like yeah. two plus hours on his feet. Yeah. Yeah, and he's orbiting around this room for ten minutes, basically. I have no idea. I have no idea how how he did it. It was the bit of the film which was the most impressive. Yeah, um, definitely. I do think it was may, maybe the, also the worst scene because it went on for way too long. I don't know. I I just found found that kind of pretty enchanting. I think at the, I think at that point the movie had kind of sucked me in because. The first kind of 10 minutes or so, it's quite a lot, like it feels almost like you're watching like a, an orchestra kind of like tuning up. It's it's a mm. lot of kind of like meandering around and you're quite close in to people and you can't really necessarily see a whole lot and you're kind of going through corridors and it's quite dark and gloomy. And then just towards the end of the movie, it's kind of like it hits you with these set pieces in the in the larger halls and uh, and actually because i watched it in two sittings this uh, the second sitting i kind of was much closer into the screen and i had my headphones in and i was kind of like this is really impressive impressive stuff yeah. so um and then of course we have the the orchestra itself at the end and you have a live performance and you're kind of in amongst right. the, the instruments as well and it's just like this is really impressive um yes it's incredibly impressive and that's why i think it's it's not a gimmick and i don't think the movie could exist in a world where it's filmed with cuts uh you wouldn't feel like you're floating and i don't think the movie is that great outside of the way it was made the mm. spectacular shots the spectacular like scenery if it was a cut and then they cut somewhere else and then you saw this fantastic dance, it would be, yeah, it's, it would be great, but it just wouldn't feel the same, would it? Yeah. Definitely. I totally agree. It would, it would feel even more like a sequence of stuff, like, mm -hmm. because it's not really a narrative. It's kind of stuff drifting in and out. The fact that it's all happening in sequence without any looking away, that kind of creates this kind of dreamlike, you know, mysterious yeah. atmosphere. And if you were just kind of like, oh, and now we're jumping over here to this other thing, it would wouldn't create that effect in in the same way. So yeah, I'm I'm to I'm totally with you. It it sounds like it's it's just a gimmick, but I think it's it's kind of an inspired idea. Yeah, and I, what I found watching this movie is it's it's not often you watch a film. Actually, maybe 1917 uh, is including this. Mm. It's not often you watch a film and you're feeling how the movie was made while you're watching it. Mm. Especially the first watch. So you, may, you might go back and think, oh, that's interesting, that's interesting. Um, but in this, you, you really do feel sort of in every moment how it was made. And it's quite a, it's quite a unique feeling, really. It sort of feels mm. like you're in some sort of immersive theatre, like in the round kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it it's it's odd because that makes it seem like it 
like it's quite artificial, but like I I keep saying I I kept feeling like this is real stuff that's that's happening, even though I know it's not. It's just something about it, the kind of like the continuousness and the, as we've already said, the semi-improvised na- nature of things. It just it just feels less kind of like mannered and artificial than like a a sort of conventional fictional film you know that's not to say that mm-hmm. you know normal <laughs> more normal like narrative cinema isn't enjoyable this just feels quite separate um i was going to say about the atmosphere um because mm-hmm. i've i've read in a few places sakurov being compared to tarkovsky or being described as like the heir of tarkovsky and i think like obviously he mostly was did kind of like at least like loosely there was a story to to his films but this felt quite close in terms of like the atmosphere and pacing and the yeah yeah i don't know which which uh Tarkovsky movies come to mind probably in terms of mood probably stalker in a weird way although obviously mm-hmm. you, you know you couldn't get much more different in terms of like the physical setting but there's there's something about the the mood and the atmosphere uh, that that seems quite similar and obviously that that has lots of extended takes so that's that's probably where that comparison is 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 coming from yeah, it's interesting me. it's interesting yeah so uh, one thing we haven't talked about very much was that obviously this is it's an it's an art gallery now i wasn't particularly struck by that much of the art that they looked at which makes me feel like i'm a bit of a philistine but um <laughs> yeah i don't i don't know about i don't know about you how did how how did you feel about the 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 paintings that we see well, I'm sort of maybe influenced by my my visits there, mm. and one thing you do not I'm not necessarily talking about the movie, but one thing that happens when you go into the Hermitage, you actually like you actually look at the the roof and the walls, the ceilings more than the paintings, more than the art. I, I found that in in real life. Mm, that's interesting. I think it's like sort of if you visited Buckingham Palace mm. and you'd see a painting on the wall, you'd say, oh, that's a nice painting. But really you're looking at like the way it's all decorated everywhere. Mm. See, this is this is the thing. This Watching this movie made me feel really bad because I recall very, very little about my visit to the Hermitage. I kind of like, I remember that I enjoyed it. I mean, I did my usual thing of getting like museum back after about two and a half hours and being like, oh, okay, that's enough for one day. But cause I, I only went that once and I did a lot of things in the kind of couple of days I was, I was in St. Petersburg, but that wasn't the experience that stuck with me. Whereas because I lived in Moscow, I went to the Tretyakov multiple times and I got a bit more of a feel for it. And, you know, I kind of, semi learnt the layout and this is where this painting is and ah oh, this is this is this painting that I've seen kind of multiple times and gone home and looked up and found more information about it yeah it was a very much like kind of I really want to go back now and kind of like appreciate it properly <laughs> I guess um, no I, but I I think you're not I think you've done nothing wrong I think when if you talk about uh Hermitage, it's like um, it's more a palace than an art museum, mm. in my opinion. 
uh, whereas like uh, Twitchikov Gallery in Moscow, it's an art gallery. Mm. And and with it being the current and probably for the foreseeable future <laughs> uh, Russian capital, that's kind of where the absolutely like Russian art, the the kind of like the this is this is what our artists paint about those paintings are there in the Trechikov, whereas I get the impression that the the Hermitage collection is is a bit more kind of international and less Russia orientated. I don't know. That's kind of that's just my impression. But um, there's definitely a, a lot more that I remember about the Trechikov. And like, if I could choose one or the other to visit, you know, just as an art gallery rather than a as a space uh, i i would definitely say you know go to the tretikov first but obviously if you are in st petersburg you should definitely go and and this makes me want to go back and and appreciate it more as a you know incredibly beautiful space and this this film really does a great job of of appreciating those uh those incredibly impressive uh rooms and corridors and yeah i think we talk about the characters being the stranger the director behind the camera um the people all around you but really the main character is it's the building isn't it it's the museum actually Mm, yeah Uh, yeah it's 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 that's one of the only things that's constantly there when the the scenery is changing uh the time is changing like Mm. as in like the time period is changing but one thing that's there is that uh, that that palace, which has mm. looked the same for so long. Yeah, I, in terms of the changes in the different times, uh, a comment I read in Birgit Boimer's, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, uh, book, um, Rush, uh, History of Russian Cinema, uh, one of her observations was that the film doesn't really spend very much time on the Soviet period at all. It's almost completely absent. And I thought that's kind of interesting. It's kind of like... Almost like it's just kind of like blocking that out and like, let's not talk about that. Um, Although there is one notable exception. Um, There's one bit where they go into a room where there's lots of like frames leaning against the wall and there's kind of like a a guy moving them about. And I don't remember whether it's the, you know, the first person narrator or whether it's the character in the room set, but... One of them says, "No, no, we can't go in here. We can't stay. There, there are corpses. There are bodies." And it's and it's kind of like, it takes a really sinister tone. And uh, at this point, I was I was watching with with Carrie, and and she was pretty convinced that it, that's um, an allusion to the siege of Leningrad in World War Two. Which you know, if you don't know that bit of Russian history, it was you know pretty much hell on earth because of the, the 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 blockade and the lack of food in the city and i forget whether it was a million people who died or or more than that but it was it was just absolutely horrific and and i thought that was interesting that the film seemed to allude to that but generally doesn't talk much about the soviet period it, it, you know even though that's obviously like a big chunk of time between the present the then present day that the movie was made and most of what we observe so 
I think it's more than an illusion. I think it's pretty clear that it's during the the siege of Leningrad. I think um, mm, there's no okay. other time period really where it could possibly be. Mm, and there's, there's also a, a bit um, where they're talking about, uh, it's like the director of the museum, and he's like whispering about mm. making repairs to the palace. Mm, Do you yeah. remember this? It was, it was a short. It was a short. Vaguely, was a short. vaguely, yeah. And that's supposed to be during the time of Stalin. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, so, but you're right. The Soviet period is very short in this movie. It's really, mm. it's, a, it's really a movie about the Romanov era. Yeah. And a, li- a little bit of the Soviet thing. And yes. then a bit of, a tiny little bit of modern day, isn't it? Actually, yeah, yes. Yeah, because we did mention that you briefly have, like, a museum director talking with somebody, some kind of important official or or something, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it being a short period of history, of, of Russian history, but St. Petersburg only has a short history, right? Of course, it, yeah, yeah, it yeah. Built, um, built by Peter the Great. Yeah, yeah. You couldn't really do this movie and have people like Ivan the Terrible, because it would be like, well, why is he there? <laughs> There's nothing here, so... Uh, yeah, um, gee, just wanted to crowbar a couple of other, um, one obviously incredibly important figure, and then one more minor figure, uh, that we encounter in, in the movie. We, we get, uh, a couple of brief glimpses of Pushkin. Right, yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> and, and both times he seems to be, you know, speaking of conflict, uh, having... A, a bit of a row with with his wife, and um, yeah, I thought that was kind of a, a an interesting detail that we don't have him doing something like grand and poetic. We don't do it, have him doing the thing that he's remembered for. We have him just having a bit of an argument. And again, long time listeners, if you've caught our Anyegin episode, we've, we've talked about this before. But uh, but Pushkin. He had a bit of a temper, like, he, I think it was something like his 27th or his 28th duel um, that he was finally mortally wounded in, so, you know, that guy was really living on borrowed time, but, yeah. Well, you know, he, the, the final duel happened because someone tried to seduce his wife. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, and that was the thing, he was quite jealous and certainly the, that was the, the era where it wasn't that unusual that you solved quote-unquote slights to your honor by you know meeting the guy outside somewhere although it was it was pointed out to me that that part of that was people didn't feel like they could trust the tsar to be like an impartial adjudicator and so at least by having a duel you were kind of like sorting it out your yourselves and it, it was kind of like fairer for fate to decide than for the Tsar to decide based on who he liked more. Um, but that's that could be totally conjecture. Well, I thought it was an interesting idea. Well, what's interesting about it is actually it seemed to flow through this dueling thing happened mm. to Russian writers and poets. Oh, of course. Yeah, because, of course, <laughs> Anyegin is somewhat uh, autobiographical, you know, because the, the duel is like the pivotal point in the plot of 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 that story and there's in a, a very important duel in 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 war and peace um 
I think at least one, and there's certainly talk that there might be others, but I think there's only actually one, but it's, um, yeah. Uh, can you think of any other instances? Sorry, putting you on the spot, but. I mean, I'm, I can talk from actually real life writers, real life Oh, poets. okay, yeah. Uh, when Alexander Pushkin died in 1837, I think in a duel, following his death, the most prominent uh, poet was Lermontov. And mm. only four years after uh, Pushkin died in a duel, Lermontov died in a duel. And Lermontov was only 26 when he died as well. So it mm. seemed to be like a thing of like poets or writers, I don't know, some sort of creative, passionate thing that they end up sorting out their, their battles by shooting each other. Yeah, yeah. And of course, that wasn't something that was particularly unique to to Russia. It was just kind of a, you know, because you get uh, talk of, even in Jane Austen, for goodness sake, you get, you have talk of there possibly being being a duel between two uh, two characters. It never actually happens, but uh, that was definitely something that was in the culture and in the literature, and something that you know occasionally people did. It's kind of like kind of kind of baffling now, but I mean, I'm sure you know the uh, the hit musical Hamilton. Of and course, he, yeah. Alexander Hamilton died by being shot by Vice President Aaron Burr. Right, yeah, of course. So, uh, so yeah, definitely uh, not even the Europeans having a monopoly on uh, on sorting sorting things <laughs> out. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, in kind of quite a messy messy fashion. I I've not managed to get along to see Hamilton, but it's definitely very much on the things I want to do hopefully before too long but uh, I, I've even avoided uh, avoided the music just because I kind of like I want to see it for the first time and it to be like all new but uh, but there you go um, yes and the other figure that I wanted to crowbar in less famous and like probably less important than, well certainly le- less important than Pushkin because Pushkin's kind of like as I've probably mentioned lots of times on the podcast basically Shakespeare that's his that's his position in in Russian literature he is to Russian literature what Shakespeare is to English but um yeah so we have a mention of uh, Gribayedov in the Persian ambassador scene because the reason the Persians are there is that they're there to apologize for the fact that this group of Russian diplomats in the capital have been killed by a mob and you have this statement by the Persian ambassador, and then it's translated into Russian, and and yeah, the narrator, uh, I think it's the narrator, or possibly it's the it's it's the stranger mentions that uh, that one of the one of the people who'd been killed was Gribayedov, who is this um, you know fairly important Russian writer who uh, I I don't know I don't know whether on in your courses you ever read Gordia at Umar or the English title Woe From Wit. I haven't, but uh, I, I kind of... The title always kind of amuses me. Um, yeah. No, I haven't, but I, I know a little bit about him as, like, mm. he was the Russian ambassador to Iran, um, which is a very interesting thing to do in the mm. early 19th century. Mm. And the interesting thing is, um, it's it's with this being in St. Petersburg, and we know how Pushkin is inextricably linked to St. Petersburg hmm. um, because of uh, there's Saskia Salo, it's like the school that's there and everything that he attended. 
But there's also, if you talk about Gribayedov, the one of the main canals in the center of St. Petersburg is named after him. Mm, okay. So yeah, yeah it's, the, it's the one that goes, if I'm, if I'm right, it's the one that goes past the internationally famous church on spilled blood. So oh, seems... okay. I hadn't realized that. Yeah, so um, yeah. for again, for listeners, maybe like less familiar with, with Russian history, the church on the spilled blood, it looks very kind of St. Basil's-esque in terms of like having the onion domes and the all the colours and kind of ornateness. But it was it's actually exactly built... what you'd expect a Russian church to look like. Yes. Like stereotypical. Yes, yes. It's kind of almost like a stereotypical Russian church, only more so. But mm-hmm. at that point in Russian history, that kind of thing was was way out of fashion generally speaking their churches looked a lot more kind of like i guess like neoclassical and domes and and columns but yeah this one was was made and as the name suggests it's on the spill blood but the uh, whose blood it was was alexander the second who was the tsar who was assassinated and i want to say what 1880 i think maybe you're right i don't know uh so yeah that's kind of like a uh, a, a little detail. No, I hadn't realised that that was uh, the Gribyedov. Um, yeah, and Gribyedov. I mean, actually from um, Moscow. Oh, okay. Um, as far as far as I'm aware, and mm. I know he has a, a statue in Moscow too. It's uh, mm. in the area Chistyaprudy, Queen Ponds. Yeah. When you get out of the metro and you walk towards that, there's lakes. Very nice area, especially in uh, summer. Oh there's a yeah. Big statue which greets you outside the me- outside the metro, and it's him. Okay. Right, that's yeah. who that guy is. <laughs> yeah, um, right, now you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, his his main his main book that I've just mentioned, "Woe from Wit." I don't know very much about it, other than I think like the book's central premise is that the problem with being smart is that you're just aware of what a terrible place the the world is, and and how in some ways actually being less intelligent, uh, it's kind of like the whole you know ignorance is bliss kind of thing so just based on that i almost think of him as being like the spiritual forefather of of lisa simpson i know that sounds ridiculous but uh yeah i don't know whether you're a simpsons fan but uh, i guess i'm just of that age i was i was at one point i definitely was oh yeah there's just this one episode which kind of focuses on on how lisa is miserable because she's smart and everyone around her and everyone in her family particularly the men are so stupid <laughs> anyway yeah i think that's probably about as big a stretch as you can get from griber yedov to uh to lisa simpson so yeah it's kind of a, like a a bit of an inauspicious note to kind of end <laughs> end the podcast on but uh did you enjoy watching this for a second time and would you recommend it generally to other people Watching it the second time, I did enjoy it. I actually think I enjoyed it more than I watched when I watched it the first time. Oh, great! Um, when I watched because when I watched it the first time, I I didn't really know what to expect. Mm. Um, so I sort of felt like, where's the plot? Almost. Mm. I watched it the second time. I was watching it through more of a uh, a film a film fan sort of that mm. eyes, like the way it was filmed, and everything, and I, I, I really quite enjoyed it. I would recommend this movie to people who are interested in Russian history or filmmaking. Mm. I think if you're not interested in either of those two, this might be a struggle. 
Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, it could definitely be a bit of a chore. Yeah, so if you're a film fan, yeah. Awesome. I think the the other thing I would I would say is perhaps if this was ever playing at a cinema near you, it would be one worth seeing. Just being able to see it with a live audience and with a surround sound and a giant screen, I can imagine that being even more immersive. So that would be the other thing I would say about like whether this is worth watching is, is if it happens to be playing near you. Yeah, I feel like watching it just on my computer with my headphones in, I sort of felt like, I said before, almost a, a bit of theatre in the round, you know, mm. you're, you're in the middle of this thing that's happening around you. I can. I only feel like with a big screen, it could be even more immersive. Mm. Like great speakers as well, you know. Yeah, I definitely feel like once I put my headphones in for like the last, for the second half, it definitely improved my experience. Just getting that closer in. Um, but yeah, okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Johnny, for coming and like sharing your experience of this film and your knowledge of Russia and Russian history. Um, if folks would like to hear more from you and your like travels and your experience of being in Russia, where would they go to find you? Well, I'm on every social network, all in the same username, Johnny Tickle, just my name, very creative. Uh, my main thing is really YouTube. I've been sort of slacking at the start of this year, but it's picking up now. I'm <laughs> traveling a lot more. <laughs> now um, that it's a little bit nicer to be outside, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I, was, I didn't really want to leave the house in, in winter. But also, I think the best place to uh, get in contact with me would probably be on Twitter. It's probably where I spend the most time. But yeah, if you're interested in maybe some of my content, then YouTube's the place to go. And it's Johnny Tickle, easy. Awesome. And yeah, I would definitely encourage people to uh, to check those out. Yeah, and uh, lots of long, continuous takes uh, walking around the, the streets of various Russian cities. It's, it's really it's re- a real treat. All right, well, thank you for joining us, Johnny. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been, a, been an absolute pleasure. All right, well, until next time, das Vidania, folks. Das Vidania. So that's it for this episode, but before I go, I'd like to thank Sasha Ilukovic and the Highly Skilled Migrants for the use of their song Cold in our intro. You can find that song and the rest of their back catalogue on Bandcamp and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us by leaving a rating at Apple Podcasts or at podchaser.com. That second one, Podchaser, even lets you rate individual episodes, so if this episode particularly stood out to you, you can let other listeners know that you enjoyed it. Recommending the show on social media is hugely helpful as well. If you can spare a moment or two to do that, it would really make my day. Thank you, thank you very much. Speaking of social media... Please find us and say hi on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You can also drop us a line at roosfilesunite at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, take care of yourselves, and bye for now.
One second. <laughs> I'll set up sentence again. <laughs> there's there's kind of an uh, an irony of us not doing this in a single continuous take, isn't there? <laughs> yes, there is indeed, yeah. Okay, so a quick announcement before you move on to whatever is next on your podcast playlist. The Roost Files Unite movie podcast now has an online bookshop, which means that any book that you pick up from there using the affiliate link in the show notes, we get a 10% commission, which will go to covering the costs of running the show. So I suppose you're wondering what you might find in the bookshop. Well, as you might imagine, it's all like Russia and Russian film themed. But one example, which ties in with the episode you just listened to, is Alexander Sokorov, Russian Ark by Birgit Boimers. We've got some classic Russian literature in there. We've got books on Russian history. We've got some resources for learning Russian, if that's something you're interested in doing. So yeah, basically click on the link in the show notes and have a browse and see if there's anything that you think you might like. For the time being, the bookstore is available to listeners in the UK only, but if you're listening from elsewhere, it's still perhaps worth having a browse because you'll almost certainly be able to pick up any of those titles from your local independent bookstore or wherever you get your books. Thank you for listening to this small announcement. And enjoy whatever you are listening to next. Bye-bye.